0: Last time we ended with uh, the Apostle Paul running from the police escaping through a window. And this time we'll have the Apostle Paul going to heaven. So, wait for it. So, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. He's continuing in his line where he is talking about boasting. So, in the beginning of chapter 11, he says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. So, he's about to go into the continued boasting. And So, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. Now, remember, why is he boasting? He's boasting because there's a claim that he is not a legitimate authority or that the other apostles are better than him or that the super apostles, these fake apostles, are better than him or that there is an illegitimacy to his office altogether. So it's doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. So visions are typically what we find with the idea of like dreams or images Or you'll have some sort of, you know, maybe you're seeing something. Imagine something like television, essentially, right? You're, You're getting some sort of thing that you're seeing. Revelations would be the propositional information. And visions are not useful unless you can interpret them propositionally. For example, remember Pharaoh, as he was dealing with dreams and he couldn't interpret them, those dreams about... Seven cows and the seven years of corn were excellent fodder for a horror show, but were not much useful for anything else without an explanation. And so the explanation made it so that Pharaoh was able to understand the seven years of famine, the seven years of plenty that were going to come. When you have Nebuchadnezzar, who is even less patient than Pharaoh, and rather than just asking for help, Nebuchadnezzar's response to getting a vision without any sort of propositional revelation is to say, I'm going to kill. All of the Chaldeans, you are worthless. This would be like President Biden waking up, being angry. President Biden, sorry, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. President Biden waking up, and he feels bad, angry about something. And what he does is, he says, round up all the university professors and also all the tarot card readers, and we're going to kill them all. Which, well... So, verse 2, verse 1, we have visions and revelations. Without the revelation to explain the vision, the visions are not by themselves useful. Why is that? Because you can interpret images in many, many, many possible ways. And when you have visions you can impose meaning on them. Images are associative. You you are reminded of things, you think about things, you attach things to them. And so this associative thought makes it so that you can impose whatever meaning you want. This is the same reason why images are not the books of the unlearned. This is why images are teachers of lies in terms of idolatry. And so Visions without propositional revelation will be interpreted differently by different people. So Paul receives visions and revelations of the Lord, from the Lord. And then he gives an example. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, this man, right, he's talking about his own visions. He's boasting in his own office. He's boasting in the giftings he's received. And in boasting in those, he is not talking about a third party. You see how the line of argument doesn't make any sense if it's somebody else? right? So it says, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago... right? So it's himself. So one of the things is the idea that he received this vision 14 years ago. He's been receiving visions for a while. And in receiving visions for a while, he is also somebody who has been claiming to be a teacher and a prophet for a longer period of time than a lot of these upstarts at Corinth that are trying to claim that they are super apostles. So. There's a length of service. There's the things he's gone through and the suffering he's gone through that he mentions back in chapter 11. There is vision and revelation. And this is to the third heaven, which is also known as paradise. Notice that parallel here between verse 2 and verse 4. Caught up to the third heaven or paradise. So what we would normally call heaven. When you die and go to heaven, that's the third heaven. What is the first heaven? The first heaven is the sky. It's the atmosphere. It's the place where you've got the... It's the firmament. It's the thing where you've got the, the water and you've got the water below. Water above called clouds. When you read Genesis, this idea, the water above and the water below, you've got the first heaven. The water that's above the heaven. And then you have the second heaven, which is space. And it's where we have stars and the sun and moon and all that. And the third heaven is paradise. So paradise, the third heaven. Mormons will try to take that and talk about there being tiers of heaven in terms of the afterlife. This is very bad Bible reading. Interact with Mormons, you generally get lots of very bad Bible reading. If you just read like the paragraph around it, you can typically defeat their interpretation. It's not, not like You don't need to know Greek or Hebrew. You don't need to read a lot of the Bible. You just need to go, what is the verse you are giving to me right now? Thank you for this verse. Let's open the Bible and let's look at that. And then just read like three verses above and three verses after, and it will be obvious in most of those cases that they have no idea what they are talking about. So this is my my recommendation for you of how to prepare to deal with Mormons. Just when they come to the door, ask them to look at the Bible with you on any verses they quote and just see if what they're saying is anything remotely close to the meaning of the text. The answer will overwhelmingly be no. So this right here, the idea of the third heaven. The third heaven is paradise. It is not a higher level of heaven. Verse 3. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Notice, so this is also used, verse 4 is used as a proof text for the idea that there are ideas or truths that are not understandable. These are inexpressible words. So first of all, why are they inexpressible? Because if they're words... Somebody expressed them and he heard them. Now either these words were meaningless to him and he didn't get anything out of it, or they were meaningful and he got something out of it. If they were meaningless, he didn't get any revelation. He just had vision. If they were meaningful, he had vision and revelation. Now, if they were meaningful, they obviously expressed something. So do you see how this can't be revelation that communicates meaning and at the same time be meaningless? So words that are inexpressible, what's the point? Well, look at the sentence. Verse 4. And I was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Why are they not to be expressed? Because God has said, don't tell anybody this. It's not lawful to utter it. It would be sin for him to communicate the information. And so he is not supposed to tell the information. So he's saying, I have received information and I have received revelation that is not only this public teaching, but there is also, there is additional stuff that it is not lawful for a man to utter. In other words, it's not lawful for him to explain everything. Of such a one I will boast, and he's boasting about himself, yet of myself I will not boast. How does that work? Because what he's doing is he's referring to himself in the third person, and what he's trying to do is to show the silliness of this boasting about his revelations and visions, and he's saying, okay, we're continuing the silly boasting. Okay, I know a guy who's got this, that guy. I'm not going to boast about myself, like in name, but that guy received this. Well, how does that relate to the subject at all? Unless he's continuing to give a defense of his own office. For such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. So now he's going to move on. So how is he weak? For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. He's going to speak the truth. He's not going to speak things that he's forbidden from speaking. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. So this refraining of the truth, speaking. What is he? What is he refraining from speaking? He's refraining from speaking the things that he was told to not speak. Because if he reveals these things that were meant to be not communicated publicly it's likely to bring glory or honor to himself that is inappropriate for him to bring to himself. So this is a confusing text to a lot of people. Hopefully that demystifies it for you. Verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So that repetition of the infirmities. So there's He is receiving revelation, but he's not willing to give things that are unlawful to communicate to others. And at the same time, there's some thorn in the flesh that's come to him, and these are both somehow weaknesses. The first weakness is he's unwilling to glory in things that are unlawful to glory in. The second weakness is there's some messenger who's a thorn in his flesh. The most common ways that gets interpreted is something about the eye problems that he's had or something about the hand problems that he's expressed that he has in various letters and so people go thorn in the flesh it must be a body thing uh, some people will literally argue that it is a literal thorn in the literal flesh and justify doing things with thorns to hurt themselves in order to do penance with them that is not what is happening here What he is saying is that this thorn in the flesh is a messenger of Satan. Who is he arguing against? He's been talking about the super-apostles who are trying to lead the Corinthian church astray. These are the messengers of Satan. Perhaps there's a particular leader of them, a most preeminent of them, who is a messenger of Satan. And this person is a person who is harassing him and causing him much pain, and as a result, it is keeping Paul humble. So Paul is bringing given lots of gifts, lots of revelation, has accomplished a lot of things, and he is suffering from this messenger of Satan who beats him, who buffets him, to prevent Paul from getting too puffed up. Truth is the way that we possess God. And God, as he gives us truth, as he gives us knowledge of the truth, there is a danger that we be proud as though we think we got it ourselves. And so God is happy to bring other things while giving us truth to keep us humble. Verse 8, concerning this thing I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So in other words Paul prayed for this messenger of Satan to be taken out of the way and the church and providence did not take him out of the way. And what has been told to him by the Lord is that the grace of the Lord is sufficient for Paul and that the strength of the Lord is made perfect, or in other words, is shown more effectively in the weakness of Paul. So the fact that Paul will accomplish much for the glory of God and that the church will advance despite this opposition is used powerfully to show the strength of God. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So, if you ever see me following that example, it's not me being humble. I'm just looking to charge up the God gun. right? You you, you say, I'm a loser. And you go, God's going to do something to support me. You go, I have weaknesses. There's failings on my part. There's all sorts of stuff that I'm failing in. So where is the power going to come from that's going to help me to overcome the problem? The Lord, right? So you boast in your infirmities, acknowledge plainly your own sins and weaknesses and incompetencies, and you can rely upon God to come in and He is going to bring His power to bear because our incompetencies, our failings, our weaknesses are the places where He is able to most powerfully show they didn't do it. They didn't do it. Right? The the idea of Pharaoh being really powerful and the Israelites being slaves. God raised up Pharaoh for the purpose of showing his power by destroying Pharaoh. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Right? This is We have weaknesses, we're displeased in it, and we can take pleasure knowing God will use this for my good. God will use this to show his strength. So, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That weakness in these things makes it so that we know that there is a strength of God I have become a fool in boasting, you have compelled me. How did they compel him? He had to give a defense. He had to give a defense. And having to give a defense, he was pushed to explain things and say things about himself that he would not have wanted to have said. I have become a fool in boasting, you have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended for you. For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles. Again, the super-apostles. Though I am nothing. Right? If he's nothing, and he's not inferior to them in anything, what does that make them? Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Right. So we're talking about Miracles that draw attention to the message and to the messenger, to the office of apostle. And there's also good works. There's revelation, there's supernatural work, and there are good works. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Apostle Paul's sarcasm. In other words, he's saying, in my works, in my preaching, and in my miraculous signs, you were not inferior to what other churches received. So, what's the deal? Why are you treating me worse than the super apostles? And why are you treating me worse than other churches treat me? Because I didn't treat you in a way that was inferior to anybody else, except for the fact that I didn't take your money. And then he says, forgive me this wrong. Now, for the third time, I am ready to come to you. And I will not be burdensome to you. Again, he's reiterating. I'm going to come to you again, and this time I don't want to take anything from you. I don't want any of your stuff. I want your stuff. For I do not seek yours, but you. I don't seek what you own. I want you. What is he saying? I want to win you to the truth. I want to win you to holiness. I want to win you to righteousness. I want you to be given to Christ as a Chaste bride. That's what he wants. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. So he's applying that to himself. He's saying, I don't want your stuff, and it's good for me when it's necessary to sacrifice, because it's better for me to lay up for you than for you to lay up for me. Now, this is a principle for everybody in authority. The ideal situation is everybody's working together to bless everybody. Everybody's working together to bless everybody. And at the same time, when there's insufficient resources for something, the person in authority should sacrifice to bear with the weak and to care for the weak and to carry their burdens And so Paul is saying that the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Now we know elsewhere, Paul teaches, for example, you have parents who are in need and the children who are able to earn, they support the parents, right? So this is not an absolute thing that you should never have children blessing parents in any material way. This is not what we're taking, right? Just like we were saying earlier, Mr. Marsh pointed out the importance of reading Scripture as a system, right? You take all of those things and you put them together. And so, In putting those things together, we can see that there are times when the parents bless the children and times when the children bless the parents. But when there's a need to carry burdens, it's better for the one in authority to carry burden for the one under authority. Verse 15. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Right. So he says... It's not because of your love for me that I'm doing this. It's the love of God. It's love for them even if they hate Him. Paul is showing us how to love his enemies. When you have somebody who you love and they are harming you, they are an enemy. And your love for them is the love of an enemy. Love for an enemy. So Paul is saying the more he pours himself out, the more he loves them, the less he is loved. That's not the way it should be, right? What should happen is a parent blesses a child. The child should seek to bless the parent. A pastor blesses the congregation. The congregation should seek to bless the pastor. magistrate blesses the people. The people bless the magistrate. And that idea of this seeking to mutually bless each other. But Paul is saying even when they don't, you still seek to love them. Now, love is not defined in an amorphous way. What is love? Love is seeking the glory of God, seeking the good of the neighbor. And how do you seek the good of the neighbor? You do it by applying the law. The law teaches you how to love your neighbor. Verse 16. Be that as it may, I did not burden you. And even though the more he poured himself out, the less they loved him. Even though the more he loved them, the less they loved him. Be that as may, I did not burden you. And the response to somebody you love, caring for them, hating you in return might be, okay, fine, I'm going to claim my rights then. You give me the stuff you owe me. You don't love me? Fine. But give me what you owe me. And he's going, no, even though I loved you, and you didn't love me in return, even though I poured myself out, and you did not reciprocate. I still didn't lay the burden on you. Now remember, the First, Second Corinthians is divided into two parts, right? Chapters one through nine to the goodies. Chapters ten through thirteen to the baddies. And so, he's talking to these people here, and his love toward them is heaping up something on them. See, you have coals unless they repent. Be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? In other words, Paul didn't play the cunning game of good cop, bad cop. Paul didn't say, oh, it's my corrupt ministers and supporters that bilked you, and I will throw them off now, and I will take things, I will not take things from you now, but I don't know what happened to that stuff, right? This, this, is like, this is a common thing, the idea of a cat's paw. How do you use somebody else to do the dirty work for you so that you don't get the blame? How do you have plausible deniability so that you can take stuff and not be the one who's held accountable? Paul is saying, I didn't do that. Who did I send you? I sent you Titus. Titus, A player. Titus. How did Titus do? He was awesome. You know it. He was awesome. We all, right? Everybody agrees Titus was awesome when he was in Corinth, right? This is what he's saying. So the idea is, judge this. I was good to you. The people I sent to you were good to you. You don't have anything. There's no claim of, oh, I, I took from you by crafty, cunning behavior. We walked in the same way. We walked with the same doctrine and we walked with the same rules. Nineteen. Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. There's not a thing that we're asking to be excused for. There's a blameless behavior that the apostolic band has given for the edification of the people in Corinth. And so what he's doing is he's ratcheting up the pressure for repentance. He's defending himself, his office, his behavior, the behavior of his associates and the people he has sent. Verse 20, For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, lest when I come again my God will humble me among you and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. So now, Paul is saying, we don't have anything to excuse ourselves for here. We have spoken in the sight of God, in Christ. We have behaved in the sight of God for the love of the church of Corinth. Now, there's a doctrine it is a useful thing to remember. Okay, first of all, we know that God is omnipresent and he is omniscient. He is everywhere and he sees everything. He knows everything. And so sometimes we kind of feel like God is a kind of an off and on light switch where you kind of like, when well, I want to talk to God, I want him to feel present. when I'm not talking to God, I would like him to not feel present. This would be convenient. There's no off switch. There's no darkness. There's no hiding. So we are, whether we like it or not, we are always before the face of God. He not only sees all of our actions and hears all of our words, but He sees every intent of your heart. All of your thoughts and all the passing ones. Not just idle words, but just... Things you shouldn't have thought. And so we are to live focused on the reality that God is everywhere present, sees all things, has made all things for His glory. And so there's two terms I want you to walk away with thinking about. One, quorum Deo, before the face of God. We are to live quorum Deo. Deo is God. Quorum, that means by process of elimination, means face. And so, we have before the face of God. That's how we are to live. And secondly, we should remember that the way to live in God's sight is to live focused on His glory. And that focus, where we go, our goal is to focus on the glory of God in what we're doing. How do you look at the situation realizing God is watching and how do we use the situation for the glory of God? That is called the doxological focus. Doxa is Glory. Or faith, depending on how you translate it. The idea that you have the glory of God and you are to believe the truth about God, and that glorifies God, and you focus on doing what will most make God known. So if we live as though God is watching in order to maximize that other people would see God, that, that is the frame of mind. But We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. Do you see how that is? Living in the sight of God for the purpose of the glory of God. For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you as I wish. He's worried. Look, I, I want you guys to hear the rebukes I'm giving you. I would like you to repent and to apply them. And secondly, if that doesn't happen, you'll find that I am not the way that you wish that I were. The Apostle Paul is saying, you you talk about me not being bold in person, you will have the opportunity to see me being bold in person if you don't repent. And I don't think you will want to see me, you won't like me when I'm bold. That's, That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. So avoid making him have to be bold. He would like to show up and find them the way he's hoping, Wanting, wishing, and then would love to give them the Paul they are wishing for. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. So what is he saying? He's saying he's afraid that they won't be edified and so he won't find them the way he wants. And if he finds them that they're not the way he wants... He will be the way they don't want. Why? Because if He doesn't show up and give them the Paul they don't want, then there's going to be contentions because He's not stopping it. There's going to be jealousies because He's not stopping it. There's going to be outbursts of wrath because He's not stopping it. There will be selfish ambitions on display because He's not stopping it. There will be backbiting because He's not stopping it. There will be whisperings and conceits and tumults Because he's not stopping it. That's why he may have to be the Paul they would prefer to not have as a house guest. Lest when I come again my God will humble me among you. In other words if he doesn't rebuke them if he isn't bold with them then they will be the ways he just said and furthermore that would mean that he has to eat humble pie Because he failed to rebuke them and be bold with them the way he said. And he would have to eat humble pie because the church he planted is a total mess. Thus, when I come again my God will humble me among you. And I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness. His boldness to them if he comes and they haven't reformed will be to avoid those things. These are This is a list of reasons to be bold and to exercise discipline and to rebuke people and to be plain and to apply the law of God in a straightforward way. And I shall mourn for many. Right? The mourning, if we don't apply discipline early and when it's necessary, then the result is that there's much cause to mourn. Right? Why do people fail to apply discipline? Why do par- parents? Why do you not spank as often as you should? Because it's not fun. Right? It is a painful experience. It doesn't hurt you more than the kids, but it does hurt you some. And so, this idea that you don't like it, right? This it's the same reason why, you know, we rebuke people in management as fast as we should, or in church as fast as we should, or whatever. There's this. Danger of the, uh, I don't want to deal with this. And I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness. But the thing that people in authority need to remember is, you can have pain right now by administering discipline, or you can mourn later because you don't administer discipline. I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. Now, uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness seem to be a part of the marks of these super apostles. One of the things, remember, that we're dealing with is in 1 Corinthians, there was the guy who was breaking the laws of affinity. He was was cohabitating with his stepmom. And so that's a type of, lean, uh, of uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness. So this is the kind of thing that the throwing off of the sexual laws that the Bible teaches. And that's what we find in a lot of false teaching places is you loosen things up to let people do the sexual stuff they want to do in order to get a crowd, in order to gain favor, in order to find those who are alienated from the church and to get them to gather around you for your fake church. The Apostle Paul is teaching us A great deal about the need to defend self and the need to administer discipline, and the effects of administering discipline and the effects of failing to do so. So, comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.